Hello, welcome to Legally Different, the hub for soul-fueled success. In this conversation, I'm joined by Jan V. Patel, who is an incredible, awesome woman. And I think this is one of the most inspiring conversations I've had on the podcast when it comes to using the law as a tool for change. We dive into so many different things in terms of Janvi's journey, and she's so incredibly humble and doesn't really even attribute some of her successes to herself. She's so humble and really acknowledges those around her who helped her, team members, co-founders. But yeah, to put it into some more context, Janvi is an entrepreneur, female founder, producer, and an activist for women's and children's rights. And those labels, that mini intro doesn't do justice to the incredible things that she has achieved so far. So just to put a couple of them into context, um, in terms of the female founder, Janvi was the co-founder of a legal company called Halebury, which was launched in 2007. And it really was very pioneering at the time. And one of the first companies that sought to address like legal resourcing in a different way, particularly when it came to senior in-house counsel. Janvi and her partner exited from that a couple of years ago and sold it to a company called Elevate. Um, So Janvi talks a lot about that journey. And she is also on the activist side. Um, You know, there's many things she's involved with and has accomplished, but um, the one that stands out is the free periods campaign she was involved with. So basically, as a result of Janvi and um, the team members on the free period board, she brought about free period products in schools, basically, and she campaigned the government to bring this about. Janvi basically saw a huge disconnect with the fact that these products weren't even provided or, or for free and went about changing that. And she says a really interesting quote in the in the interview where she says, I realised I'm not just an advisor of the law. I can use the law to bring about change. And yeah, I guess the elements of that were a bit of a learning curve for her at the time when she set about this free period campaign. And she's really open and and kind of provides a lot of visibility on that process. And it's really interesting to hear about. But yeah, that was a key takeaway for me. You can use the law as a tool for change. And yeah, she's involved in so many incredible things. I'll leave it there and not say too much, but really like her energy is so, she's so cool, calm and collected, incredibly humble. And yeah, just was really in awe of her during this conversation. Um, She started her career in private practice as a lawyer, but she got these what I call soul nudges that something wasn't right. And when she felt them, you know, she'd never associated herself as like a spontaneous person, but um, she had to lean into those feelings and, and do something about them. So she quit her private practice career at the time, which then opened some different doors and led to her founding Halebury. Um, So you'll hear all about that journey and all the other wonderful things she's involved with. And this is the last episode of season two. So yeah, a great one to go out on, incredibly inspiring. So yeah, sit back and enjoy and be inspired by the wonderful Janvi Patel. And I'll share more in the outro about what is next for Legally Different. Thank you. Welcome everyone. I'm joined by the incredible Janvi Patel, who is an entrepreneur, female founder, 
an activist for women's and children's rights, a producer and a business consultant. Wow, I feel like even that intro doesn't do you justice, Jambi, based on what I know about you, because even within all of those headings, there's so many strands and incredible things that you've been involved with. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Oh gosh, I'm so excited as well. And that's so lovely of you to say thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Yeah, as I say, I'm really looking forward to getting into all these different elements that you've been involved with. But let's start back at the beginning because I know you are a qualified lawyer. You've since pivoted away from that. Um, I know you qualified as an employment lawyer. I'd love to go back to before you were a lawyer and understand a bit about why you chose to become a lawyer and what your path into law was. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, it's a really big question to start with because I've been kind of diving into why I became a lawyer. And I think a large part of it was from an Indian background. My parents, my dad's from Uganda and that kind of immigrant background of you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer, an accountant. It's one of the professional titles. And everyone in my family was going into finance and I didn't want to compete with them. So that was kind of one of the reasons. The other one was I wasn't very good at school. And a lot of people would tell me that I wouldn't make it to university, including some of the teachers. And I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. and I'm going to do something really hard and I'm going to do law. And so um, those were the kind of main strands. And that together with the fact it was LA law. So it was kind of like my generation's uh, suits. And so it was all very glam. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really cool. I'll be a lawyer. And the title sounded right. Um, honestly, it wasn't much more than that. Um, I didn't really know about law that much. I'd worked in a couple of small law firms just to get some training experience, but I didn't really understand that much of what was going on. I didn't get to see many cases or anything like that. So um, it was really that basic. And so I started going into law, did a law and accounting degree at Manchester. Um, I just about made it. I didn't even get the grades I was meant to get, but my mom called up and persuaded them to take me. So they took me and then I carried down the track. I passed that, got a 2-1 and went to, um, got training contract at Charles Russell, now Charles Russell Speechley. And it just kept going. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's one of the things we talked about offline. I'm not 100% sure this was the ideal profession for me. Looking back, if, if I was doing career advice for me, looking back, I think I would have suggested something else. But yeah, that's how I ended up in, in law. Mm, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think a lot of people could kind of resonate with that, um, like being influenced by family and what's yeah. um, acceptable jobs in society were and, and following the hard path to, you know, because it's a challenge and proving people right. wrong. Um, yeah. yeah. And actually, I mean, it's an amazing profession. It is an amazing profession. It's got such an incredible reputation. And uh, for my parents, especially, and I was kind of drilled into this, like you can, you can get thrown out of a country, but you always take your profession and your mind with you. So you can go wherever you can, you can work in different places. And law is such a good base for many other professions. And so that's what, what I always thought. Like, even if this doesn't work out, I have the base to go do something, to go do something else and an incredible degree with it. So, um, yeah, there were many, many touch points that made sense for me to go into, into law. Yeah, it's true what you say there. And for sure, it definitely stood you in good stead for where life took you next. Um, so 
when was it you kind of realized, oh, maybe this isn't for me, mainstream practice? And when did you kind of pivot away from it and why? What was kind of like your aha moment that made you think, hmm, time to do something different? So yeah, that, that's kind of like, it takes me a while to figure this stuff out. It takes me a while to go, oh, that's what's happening. So I was at Charles Russell for about seven years and I loved it there. They were such an amazing team. I was in the employment team. It was a pretty big employment team, but really dynamic under the leadership of David Green at the time. Um, still friends with a number of people who, you know, kind of colleagues at the, at the team that were at the time. Um, so I loved it. But there came to a point when I was like looking around thinking, I don't think this is the place for me. There's very few people who look like me. There was one female partner who had children at the time. And that was, I just remember conversations about um, her maternity leave and she's an equity partner. And then looking at the rules of do equity partners get maternity leave and get bonus pools. And I remember all of those conversations, not that I was privy to her arrangement, I just remember that being a conversation. I was like, why is that even discussed? Like, I don't understand. I mean, and, and now it will be different, definitely. And it's not just Charles Russell, it's many other firms as well. So, but I just remember thinking, why is that being discussed? Why am I here? Like, this is just such a weird environment. Very few, as I said, very few people looked like me, had my background. Um, and I just felt it just wasn't right for me. And I applied to other law firms, but I, honestly, I felt like Charles Russell was one of the best places to, uh, one of the nicest environments to work in. And so if I don't feel included here, I don't think I'm going to feel it anywhere else either. And so literally I walked into the office one day and just, you know, when you just walk in, you're like, I just need to not be here. I need to be somewhere else. I don't know where that is, but this doesn't feel right anymore. And honestly, I've been thinking, um, I used to walk to work without any earpods, any books. We used to walk in silence. And it's something that I don't do anymore, but I used to do a lot because we didn't have like the mobile phones that we have now, or the music and all the rest of it, right? So I used to spend a good hour a day walking in silence. I used to sometimes run to and from work and that was in silence. And it was just those silent moments. I was like literally listening to myself thinking, I don't belong here. I don't know why I'm here. I need to do something else. And so I walked into the office one day, seven years in, and I was like, I need to not be here. And so it was around seven in the morning. So I was like, you know what? Um, my husband now, but my boyfriend at the time was in New York. And I was like, let me just wait till he wakes up and I'll just have a chat with him because maybe I'm just going crazy. And I'll have a chat with my dad and my brother. I'll wait till everyone gets to work and then I'll have a chat. And got to work and and when I, when I spoke to everyone, they were like, well, why are you doing it? I was like, I don't know. I just don't want to be here. I'm like, well, don't be. And I had no job to go into. I had nothing. But literally, I waited for 24 hours and then I handed in my resignation. And as I did, I burst into tears. And David was like, well, don't have to leave. Like, I'm not making you leave. I was like, no, I, I need to. I need to. I need to go do something else. Mm. And so it was a very strange experience for me because I'm not that spontaneous when it comes to big decisions like that but it was just so deep that I was like I'm just in the wrong place I need to not be here and so yeah that was it and I left without another job and I didn't actually know what I was going to do I actually started studying for um, doing an MBA I was trying to do the GMAT so I started studying for that thinking maybe I'll do that and go into business 
Um, but I didn't, and I ended up not doing that at all. I didn't do the GMAT and I didn't go to business school. But I was like, I need to do something. I just didn't know what it was, but I need to not be here. So yeah, so I left Charles Russell, but within um, a month, I got um, uh, a recruiter called me up and asked me if I'd be interested in a job at Nortel. So I was like, you know what, I'll try it. Because I always wanted to go in-house thinking I'd get closer to business. I'd have, it just seemed like I would have a different perspective to you know, the law and what I was practicing at the time. Um, and there's so few jobs for employment lawyers that I was excited that there was a job, an in-house job for an employment lawyer. So, and Norton was great. There's a telecoms company. It was like, you know, kind of a cool place to be. So I went um, for the interview, got the job, and I actually resigned within three weeks of starting the job. I stayed for a lot longer, but I was like, I cannot be here either. <laughs> there was just, again, a moment of like, what am I doing here? I'm driving to a business park from central London to Maidenhead every day, working different time zones. And this, it was one of the nicest teams again. Like the, the team at Nortel were just so lovely. The legal team were amazing. The organization was amazing. I was like, I don't, like if I can't, if this doesn't feel right, it's not going to feel right. Mm. So I left that. So I stayed, I think for nearly a year, but I resigned in three weeks. And I said, I think you need to find someone else. This isn't the place for me. They were lovely about it. They were like, no, we get it. But can you stay? And I was like, I'll stay until I finish the projects. I'd already started some projects. I was like, I'll finish them because I have nothing else to go to. But I need to not be here. Mm. So again, I left without anything. (laughs) It's like this. amazing how you got those messages from yourself just loud and clear. I need to not be here. And I think something that really stood out for me is those moments that you had to yourself where things are quiet yeah. and to me that shows like mm-hmm. you know there is so much noise and, and so much around us that influence our influences our thoughts and feelings but like that time with yourself sounds like it was really potent and helpful for you in understanding what was right or not even if you didn't know what your yeah. next step was there was that message I need to not be here and yeah and it's a real feeling of kind of listening to your your gut right and your heart and going what is it that it, it's just that uncomfortable feeling and then trying to understand what that is. Mm. And we all have it. It's just whether you hear it and you listen to it is a, a different question, but it's like, yeah, I, I just felt it yeah, very strongly. Actually, we haven't, I haven't shared this with you, but um, offline before we were looking at Janvi's human design. And um, one thing about your human design chat is you're very intuitive. It shows you get like intuitive hits. So maybe that was going on at the time. Wow. As well. Yeah. And that's maybe why it takes me a bit longer to figure it out because it's, yeah. it's kind of like it's a, it has to be a strong enough feeling for me to go, oh, that's just not how this should exactly. be. The intuition is actually very quiet. It's like a small whisper and it takes a lot for us to listen and to trust it because we haven't been nurtured to do that yeah so it might be something to do with that but it's it's very spontaneous when it hits it hits and you have to act on it which sounds like it definitely played out there and to the outside world it can seem spontaneous but when you know and when you're willing to trust it you're like I know that this is the right path for me it's interesting because I don't think um other people in my life will go oh you're I don't think they'll see me as necessarily spontaneous or reckless in the decision making so often when I come out and say I don't want to do that anymore we're not not doing it this way um they listen because it's just not something I often do I don't kind of come out and go we're going to do another campaign or 
we're going to move house or we're going to whatever it is I don't do things lightly I do still think about it so when I left the job I didn't I had savings so one of the things I my mother um, also from an immigrant background was very clear that when you start working you have to save a certain percentage of your income especially when you don't have um, children and like the other kind of financial responsibilities which I didn't when I first started I lived at I lived at home kind of very traditional Indian background but we I lived at home pretty much until I got married uh, and so I could save about 50% of my salary which I did for about seven years so when I and I did that partly because I knew I wanted to start a business I just didn't know in what but I knew I should be saving for a bigger plan and so when I left I had some money that I could play you know not necessarily play with but live off right mm. so it wasn't a reckless decision because I had thought about it mm. I wasn't going to go home and go oh mom I can't afford to pay my rent or I can't afford to live there was none of that right I wasn't going to my now husband saying oh you know I, I wasn't doing it I'm not putting anyone down if anyone does that but it's just I wasn't doing that yeah and so when I was making this decision no one questioned whether they'd have to support me or not support me or what I'd do next. Mm-hmm. And I think even when we exited, and we, we can talk about this as well, but when, when we sold the business and exited, no one was like, well, what are you going to do next? I mean, there was kind of general questions of excitement of, oh my gosh, what are you going to do next? But no one's like, oh my God, you can sit around and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't think anyone thinks that of me. And I, I don't think um, people know that I have been will have been thinking about my next step for a while Mm. and so and it hasn't you know I'm still shaping it but I think yeah there was that I I don't do things offhand is what I'm trying to say yeah there's a thought process yeah yeah Yeah. actually in your human design your authority is called emotional which takes a while it's like riding a wave and your head is very activated so definitely thinking things through feeling them through and that's your primary authority feeling it and riding a wave over time and you're also very resourceful so having everything in check hence the money saved <laughs> people just right. say a pair of hands quite clearly I trust what she's doing she's an intelligent woman and she's got this sorted but that was <laughs> very good advice by your mum as well with the um, yeah the savings great advice and also um her help in getting you into law school <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. 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 She's very lovely. She, um, yeah, but she's her, they've had many rides on the entrepreneur thing because my dad had his own practice as well, but also just from an, again, an immigrant background, they came to the UK without any money at all. And so her insecurity, um, especially being the woman and having to juggle the, the household finances was a real stress and in her day um I mean I think it obviously still carries on now but my dad controlled the money and he would give her a a budget and then that made her feel really insecure because she didn't know where the investments were going where savings were going who was being what was being spent and so um she was like don't let that happen to you don't you need to be in control of your finances you need to know where the money is you need to know how it's being spent and you need to have control because if you, I mean, she never would, she would never have said if you wanted to leave because that's not the traditional way. But yeah. she was like, if, you know, you need to know and feel secure that you can take care of your family if you have a family. So she was like, you know, make sure you're in, in charge. And, you know, there's many days I wish I wasn't in charge. 
<laughs> like I don't want to be budgeted. I want to be taken care of. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, oh, well, my husband, poor guy. He he he. Obviously, he he takes care of many things. But it's yeah. like it's hard to, you know, I, I can't hand it over like that. So um, even when he tries, he's like, just do it because I'm going to probably micromanage it. so so, uh, but she was very she was very sure about you've got to you've got to to know where your money's coming you've got to know how to spend it you've got to know how to manage it Um, and you need to kind of think ahead because not everyone does and that's not a male female thing she goes just not everyone does but you will you should you should think ahead and figure out you know and and especially in the U.S. where the financial and the social structure is so different. Like you have to plan ahead for healthcare, have to plan ahead for university fund funding, because it is off the charts crazy in the US for everything. Mm-hmm. And there is no base level. There's no there's no social um, safety net. Mm-hmm. And so you know my kids are all going to be at university at the same time, and I'm going to be in my sixties. I don't really want to be. I mean the the price of university and the university fees and the cost of living and health insurance and student loans is insane you're just like i just you know so like it's things that i have been planning ahead for about 10 years and i don't think it would have been in my husband's head to do that Mm. not because he doesn't plan ahead it's just because that's how i was trained to plan ahead yeah like 10 20 years right so you're like okay 10 years I'm going to be 60 I'm not going to want to do the crazy graft at 60 and have to do a massive outlay for three kids so mm-hmm. I think about the stuff all the time yeah it's amazing it's how, um, empowered you in that way amazing and um, you do have in human design the channel of money so it doesn't come as a surprise <laughs> to me that you think about yeah. it and it's one of your strengths for sure but I should add then because you mentioned you're in the US that Jambi's based in LA yeah. lives over in LA yeah and we were just saying before how crazy everything is there in the school yeah. system and you're competing against yeah. the likes of J-Lo. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's it's definitely LA. It's definitely an LA thing. Yeah. It's also a private school thing, which we definitely don't need to be in because our local schools are great, but we are now in it and have been for a while. Um, but also, I just, yeah, LA has this kind of, it's amazing in so many ways but there is a crazy level to it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the money in LA goes from, you know, I'm working with children, um, an organization called School on Wheels. So one in 20 children in California are homeless. And that literally means they're living in a shelter or in a car or in a motel. Um, and so you have that level. Uh, and then you have, Private, you know, two, three private jets and like boats and like the crazy level. Mm-hmm. And the difference is so huge. And it's literally a few blocks from each other. But yeah, and, and the one of the things with the US, as I've already said, is there's no safety net. Like mm-hmm. I feel like it's all kind of dropped out. Um, the cost of living is more than I had anticipated it to be. The level of taxes, I think, are more than I anticipated to be, just everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I feel. Yeah, in the US, it's just so different. When I came here, I was like, oh, it's going to be so, you know, the cost of living is less. You've got the sunshine. It's like, I don't go to the beach every week. I, mean, I haven't been, in fact, I haven't been to the beach. I've been thinking about six months. 
uh, last time I played netball on the beach was the last time I went to the beach. But that was about it. Like it's just you, you're constantly driving and moving and trying to take children around or work, do your own work. Mm. Um, and so I think the glam part of LA looks glam on TV, mm. but the day-to-day living is not so mm. straightforward. It's beautiful sunshine, which is amazing, but it is an expensive place to live. Mm. And the, the difference in lifestyle is just insane. Mm. Um, and it's heartbreaking. I, I don't, I didn't hear about children living on the streets in families in the UK. Just, I didn't hear that mm. in that California, one in 20 children. I was like, that is an insane number. Wow. Yeah. I think I remember you saying when we first spoke that you brought your children to Europe for a trip and they were surprised that they didn't see homeless people on the streets because yeah. it's common there. Yeah. So, I mean, literally at the end of our street or just walking around, they're tents. They're literally like full on tents. I think they'd be moved now, but they were full on tents and they're veterans. So they've been living off on the streets for like years mm. and you don't see that. I mean, they don't see, didn't see it to that extent in the, in London or the UK. And obviously there is a quite big homeless issue within, mm. within the UK, yeah. but I think it's just, it's just a different level to what they've seen in California. And I think also that's partly because I do work with school on wheels um, and they hear me talking about how children that you know they have what are you going to do if, if you have no school no internet no wi-fi no devices and you're in a car like that's your for a whole year the schools were shut down here for a whole year what are you going to do mm-hmm. where are you going to eat like so they heard me talking a lot more about it here as well but yeah i find it i find there's just the the difference quite insane mm, yeah and I know the justice and activism side of things is the big part of your work, which we'll yeah. come on to. So that no doubt pulls at your heartstrings a lot. So just rewinding a little bit, just kind of pivoting from being an employment lawyer and you then stepped into um, your entrepreneurial role for, I think it was Halebury, your first yeah. endeavor, wasn't it? Yeah. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about um, Halebury and what that part of your journey looked like? So, um so if, you, if I take you back to the moment when I've kind of left Charles Russell, gone into Nortel, and then a few weeks later decided to oh, yeah, leave yeah. Nortel. Um, so then I'm thinking there's only two options within the legal world. You've either got private practice or you've got in-house. And at that point, I was like, this is just a little insane. How can I be nearly eight years qualified and I don't have any career options now? I've just got these two and neither of them fit with me. Um, and then on top of it, I've now experienced um, working within private practice and advising clients in private practice um, and all the good and bad that comes with that from a client's perspective. And then I've worked within Nortel and understood a bit more about what the client really wants and how they operate. I was like, there's just a massive disconnect between the two. And I think I can figure out a better way of making this work. So I started putting a plan together. Um, at the time, Keystone, I don't know what they were called back then. They were called something different, but Keystone was operating. And so I could see their business model. And so started to play around with what does good look like? If I was setting this up from scratch, how would this operate? Um, and started playing around with business ideas and putting a pack together and a deck together and having kind of getting excited about it. 
Um, at that time, Denise was Denise Neth, uh, who became my business partner, and we were good friends from Charles Russell days. So we were just hanging out and just chatting. And I presented this business plan to her. I was like, do you want to do this with me? And after a few months of her thinking about it, she was like, I'd love to do it. Let's do it together. And then we spent actually more time just thinking about if we were a lawyer, um, well, we weren't lawyers, but if we were practicing in this world, what's our ideal scenario? How would we want to operate, especially as mid to senior lawyers? What is it we're looking for? Looking for flexibility, looking for income, looking for a different way of operating, especially if you come from the in-house law part, you don't really want to go back into private practice. So you're like, how would I want to um how would I want to work with my clients? Where would I want to be located? And what sort of pressure would I want to have? And so we kind of dived into that a lot. And then we also dived into the client part. Like what what are the things that drive clients practice? Is it just the cost? Is it the way advice is given? Way so one of the things that actually drove me crazy was these amazing external counsel and they really were amazing but I couldn't hand over a project I couldn't go you've worked with us for longer than I've been at Nortel can you take the project over I'd still have to give them instructions and feed them information and be the internal kind of go around I just want to hand over a project and so I was thinking that would be a really good thing to do be able to say listen this person's got in-house experience they'll figure it out when they hit your ground and they'll just run with the project and keep you in the loop like that sounds great. So we kind of played around with what we wanted from both sides and then created a model that we thought would work. So yeah, so we kind of created this model and then in 2007 launched it. In the same year, Lawyers on Demand and Axiom launched. So there was something definitely in the water for that year. So um, but yeah, I mean, it was crazy as well because we had no money. We had no contacts at all. Because we'd come out of private practice, went in-house. We didn't have any contacts other than our in-house contacts. So I had Nortel and Denise had Sky. Um, but that was it. We didn't have any lawyers. We didn't have any publicity. We had like no backing at all. So Lawyers on Demand obviously had BLP. Mm-hmm. Um, and Axiom just had venture capital, had a huge amount of venture capital money and a client base from the US. And we had nothing. Um, but we decided this is what we were going to do. Um, so yeah, it was also the year uh, I got married the year before, and I had my first kid in two thousand and eight. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. So we kind of did this ride of doing the business, but then getting married and having kids, and all of it in the first five years of operating. Amazing, yeah, <laughs> and crazy, right? <laughs> thing, but you eventually made those connections because I remember you saying that was a key thing for you like the lack of connection yeah. in the industry. So I I mean, if you think about the industry, right, so especially then, so 2007, I think it is very different now. I mean, mm-hmm. not as far different as I would have liked, liked it to be, but it was very different. It was such a close-knit community, especially if you're looking at the GC community. There was only one or two key events. So you'd have the Laura event or the FT event, and those were heavily sponsored, and I think they probably still are, and they were done by the big firms. You couldn't get in. Um, LinkedIn was not as used by a lot of GCs as they are now. But it was hard to get in contact or speak to GCs. Where was I going to do that? We had no publicity, so no one would write about us, um, especially for the first few years. We had no events we could turn up to. So how are we going to 
speak to anyone about this great business model that we had. And to be fair, at the time, there was Keystone, Lawyers on Demand and Axiom, who had a fair amount of backing. So they had the resources to kind of get more publicity and more and more noise about them. So we really struggled for the first five years to do anything. Like basic clients, basic money. Like if we had five, ten thousand in our bank by the end of the month, that was a good month. Like it was a struggle every day. Plus having the kids and I moved location, I moved to LA. Um, 2011, I moved to LA. So, yeah, we were trying to juggle a lot, trying to figure it out. Um, but as I have said to many entrepreneurs, we think that businesses, especially when we look at companies like Facebook and some of the other big tech companies, they're like, oh my God, they've done so much in 10 years. But most businesses struggle for the first five years. And I feel like people don't, a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that. Like, oh, we tried for three years and we didn't get any traction. I was like, I know, but you need to get to over five. <laughs> like, there's a period you have to kind of keep going. And then people will start remembering you because they, they heard you three years ago or four years ago. And then you have, you know, staying power and you have a bit of momentum. And once you get two or three, then you'll get three or four. And it just keeps, you know, it keeps adding on. But mm-hmm. I feel like it takes a certain period of time mm-hmm. uh, to kind of build that momentum, that credibility, and it's done slowly, especially in the legal industry. It is slow. It is slow to move. It is slow to get the RFPs out, to get on the panel. And really, once we got one or two key supporters, so PwC was a great supporter. BT, Dan Fitz at BT was incredible. Um, I have to say, Norta was lovely. They instructed us, as did Sky. And so there were a few key players who really helped. And then when they when they were willing to go out and say nice things, kind of started to move mm-hmm. and started to kind of escalate. So, yeah, so it, it took a while. Yeah, yeah. I know you consult for businesses now. And um, so is that one of the key themes you often see? It definitely takes, and you know, a number yeah. of years, five years, because I can... I can imagine it is like when you've got an idea and you're really passionate about something and you put all this effort into launch, like you want it to all happen then, you want it to come to fruition. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying from your experience is that, you know, it's a bit of a waiting game and be in it for the longer haul and have patience. Yeah, I think, um, so the thing that I, I know the consultancy I love, so I do work with founder businesses and help them understand well not just kind of strategy and kind of how do we get to the market they want to get to but actually help them implement it as well because I think uh, that's really important there's always the how but there's always the kind of you know how can we do it but then it's the actual doing that I think is also really important to make sure it's implemented properly but I one of the things I do see a lot of people being oh you know we've got this great product we'll get it out to market we'll get you know someone big will take us up and it'll be great. Like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. Because even if someone signs a contract, so for example, in our case, BT signed a contract, you then have to sell yourself with MBT. You have to go and make connections with MBT. You have to make sure that each one of those touch points was a valuable touch point and it had a good feedback so that it can continue to have a knock-on effect internally. And especially if you're going for big contracts, the amount of customer care that you need to do to make sure that you continue to grow that relationship is really important and so I think 
when I work with founder businesses, it's not just on the marketing and the client base, but it is also on different aspects of the business, like people management and making sure you've got the right team in place, the right infrastructure in place and thinking things through. And one of the things I always talk about is working out how to get yourself into the matrix. And I know it sounds crazy because we've just watched the matrix movie. (laughs) So it's not a, a play on the matrix movie at all, but it is that kind of thought process on once you get to hit your sweet spot and once you get things organized in a specific way that works for your business and your, your customer base, it is really amazing to see how fast you can move and how well you can move and how you can create efficiencies. And I'll give you an example from, from our business. When we first started, we thought we'd be a bit more of an umbrella business. We would take lawyers on and we'd provide the back-end service. What we soon realized, again, remembering this is 2007, so the cloud infrastructure wasn't quite what it is today. Um, flexible working was not as well thought of as, as I think it is more, more so today. But what we realized was we didn't have the infrastructure and we didn't really have the appetite to do that umbrella service. And to just go, we'll be your back end. You guys go get your own clients. We wanted more control. And on top of it, we wanted to hit the Fortune 250 companies. So 5250 companies of your UK. So I so we had a specific client base and we wanted to work with in-house legal teams. So what we ended up doing is pivoting, getting moving away from the kind of smaller, uh, the, the lawyers who had the smaller clients who were doing more small corporate deals which were very time consuming and hard for us to manage. And we literally cut out like about 10 10 of our lawyers, which at that time was a fair amount of revenue and said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to pivot to doing just in-house and doing more in-house development, placements, longer term relationships. And we dropped in revenue. We dropped in revenue. We lost lawyers. We lost, and they weren't very happy about leaving anyway, but like we we lost some, you know, some traction within the market because of it. But as soon as we started to pivot, we could see an uptake in the efficiency within the team. We had our messaging was clear. We knew who we were targeting, which customers we were targeting, which lawyers we were targeting. The recruitment team was clear. The client relations team was clear. And as soon as that kind of stabilized, we were on a really fast track to growing. And so. It, but it took us a few years to kind of figure that out, going, this is just not going to work. We're going to, we were trying to make it work, but the energy it was taking to make it work, the, the kind of, you know, the, the infrastructure we would have had to put in place to make it work properly, we just didn't want to do. Mm. Um, and some of, some of that was we didn't want to put the money in, but some of that was we just didn't want to do it. Like in our heart, we were like, that's not really the type of law we want to practice. We want to go somewhere else with this. So it is like, once you kind of realize where your niche is and where you think you can get real when where your strength in your in your team and your market is that's when i think you really hit it and hit it well and then all the structure works into that whether it's recruitment whether it's how you manage your your marketing how you manage your cash flow all of it works into that and has like you know what different elements that feed feed into that major operation and um, so yeah that's what i love doing Trying to figure it out and then trying to get it, get each element to play to the to that strength. Interesting. Thank you so much. Wisdom and yeah, wiser <laughs> than that. Thank you. And then you sold Helbury. Was it in two thousand eighteen? God, yes. Sold yeah. Helbury two thousand eighteen. Yes. 
because <laughs> we um yeah because it was christmas like literally the last day before the <laughs> office shut mm. is when we sold when we finally signed all the paperwork and and sold hailway yeah and then we stayed we sold it to elevate and worked with the elevate team for about a year and a year and a bit uh expanded and we took over literally the world although elevate is already in pretty much everywhere in the world mm. uh, the flexible resourcing piece which is a piece we ran we launched in different countries within Europe but in Australia Singapore Hong Kong and then we expanded in the US as well wow. so it became this 24-hour machine that yeah. was like pretty full-on and dealing with integration work too because they already had an existing flex team and we integrated Hailbury with that operation mm. and then a year and a bit of doing that I was like I am done <laughs> that, it, it, was, it wasn't quite the moment of walking into Charles Russell going here's my resignation but I was like I need to just step away from it yeah. <laughs> like I'm exhausted yeah. yeah I was I was out of all steam like I was like I, I'm done now mm. wow I can imagine but what an accomplishment to start that business and get it to a place where another company was interested in buying yeah. it and taking it global effectively. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible. It's, it's, um, when we started the business, we had a plan to exit. We, we had a thought process of exiting. We even had a figure in our mind of what we would exit for. So Denise and I are both very into vision boards and having a, a plan for the longer term and what that looks like. And so from day one, we had a plan of building a business that we could exit out of in some form. Mm. Um, meeting Liam um, and the Elevate team was really um, by chance and interesting and a really fascinating journey because I met Liam, I think about five years before we actually did the exit and didn't even talk about doing the exit. So it's, and he lives in LA, not far from me. So it's just like, so many chance meetings in the in the process, right? Um, and that they, they wanted to increase their operation in this space. So anyway, many, many chance meetings, uh, but it worked out. It worked out in the end. But we always had a plan that we wanted to build a business that we could sell. And we found it really interesting that a lot of law firms are not easy to sell and exit in that way. Um, but we wanted to we structured ourselves and created the structure so that we could do that. Mm, amazing. Yeah, incredible yeah. that you set that intention at the outset and then you could kind of work with that going through. And yeah, then, yeah. And then, yeah. Um, you know, what what was in store for you after that? I mean, I know you've been involved in so many <laughs> amazing things. I, mean, uh, um, I think when we exited, I really did just want a year doing nothing. Mm. Uh, it had been... A heavy process trying to get the business to the point of sale mm. to then actually doing the sale like we had to do all the regulatory work and you know you have to make sure the business carries on growing because your valuations are based off a certain price point so you have to keep that going and then you have to do the acquisition and it's just the two of us it's not like we had an entire management team I mean we had a management team but it wasn't like an ownership team mm. that could go oh you take this part and we'll take this like it's still Denise and I doing the day-to-day, doing the deal, doing all of it. So the deal itself was exhausting. And then we went into a year and a bit of full-on expansion and work. So we already had our business that we were you know, pretty full-on in and then expanding it and adding. So it was a, by the time we left, we were, I mean, I, I won't speak for Denise, um, 
but I was done. Like I was, I was wiped out, exhausted. And what I had planned to do um, was take my first holiday with the kids without having a cell phone or without having my mobile phone, which I had never done because I had launched the business before they were born. And every vacation I'd be on my phone or something would have happened in the office or whatever. Mm. And so this was going to be my first three month period where we were going to not do that. Uh, but then lockdown happened. So literally <laughs> within about wow. within uh, the week before my last week at Elevate, mm. um, yeah, we were the, all the kids were on homeschool, and uh, my that. husband's business. I know, right? Timing of that bad, but equally just amazing, right? Just like I had this gut feeling in December. So we resigned in December, or January, first week of January, mm. after the Christmas break, and so. Yeah, just I just knew it was time to move on. And then the timing was literally as the kids all were at home. So it was amazing timing because I think I would have fully collapsed yeah. if I was doing Elevate and the three kids. And on top of that, my husband's business went crazy because he works in medical supplies. Mm. So his uh, PPE business went crazy as did the rest of the operation. It was just like full on. So it, it was good timing from a family perspective because I could go, okay, I'm just dealing, I'll deal with the kids, you deal with work and we'll kind of move it. But I, my initial plan was to go on holiday for three mm, months yeah. uh, and to take the rest of the year off and think about what I want to do. But that didn't happen. Um, but while I was sitting around going, oh, so this is real crazy for me. I wonder how everyone else is dealing with it. I actually got in contact with School on Wheels and said, what do you need? Because I remember School on Wheels when I first moved to LA. Uh, and I called them and said, what is it you really need? What exactly um, because you've got So they help. In, it's an organization that um, supports children who are homeless within California. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is, have you ever seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness with oh, Will yeah. Smith and his son? It is like that. These kids, like their parents are working, but it's so expensive in California. And they have nowhere to live and there's a housing shortage. And it's just, anyway, so um, they support the children. So when their parents are off to work, school days finish at what, 2.33, they pick up the children. This is in a normal school year. They, they pick up the children, they take them to their centers and they give them after school care and support and food and all of that stuff until their parents are ready to pick them up. And so I called them. I was like, how's it going with you guys? What do you need? And um, the head of School on Wheels, an amazing guy called Charles Evans, he said, um, we really need devices. We don't have internet and devices and the state haven't given them yet. And our children have nothing, like literally nothing. And we have nothing to support them with. Mm. So anyway, I called a bunch of GCs because obviously we're in the tech world. So amazing GCs turned up and said, we'll help out. One of them being from... Um, AT&T he messaged me and said don't worry we'll I'll get my AT&T team out um, we had some other people from HP and other places going let's see what we can do to help so I kind of put them in contact with Charles from um, from School on Wheels and then we raised a bunch of money to try and buy devices for the children so we raised like about 35,000 which was amazing Mm. Um, to buy devices for the children and got in contact with the mayor's office so that they could help get hotspots for the children. And it's like this, this insanely 
crazy world where you're like calling these tech companies and um, internet companies saying, I need some hotspots for some homeless children. They'll go, that's great. We'll give it to you. Give me an address. Be like, mm, reference. <laughs> can't give you an address. Let's, let's think about the issue right now. Mm. Like, yeah, we can't give it to you unless I have an address. Like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> I'm in this like no man's land of not being able to give you an address. Wow. So, um, but, but that's why the mayor's office had to get involved and uh, they provided access to some hotspots. Some shelters opened up their hotspots and motels did as well. So yeah, so I got involved in, in School on Wheels as we were in lockdown. Uh, seeing how expensive it was for, just to set my kids up. My kids didn't all have devices. They were 10 years old, no, 9 years old, 10 years old. They didn't have devices. I don't have iPads for all my kids where they can work and laptops. And they don't all have a desk each and they share rooms. Like I didn't have a space and I have space for everyone now because I created it. But I didn't, day one of lockdown, I was like, God, how are we going to do this? How is everyone going to have, I mean, you're pretty much setting up an office, right? You needed printers, you needed scanning machines, you needed like device, and it's just presumed that you had this. And the pricing of everything was going crazy, right? So what was that, 5000 10000 on buying devices for everyone? Like, who's doing that? Mm. Like, who's got the means to do this? So that's why I started thinking about, I wonder what everyone else's children are doing when you have no money. Uh, and when you're struggling to get food, because we had lines for food, we had lines for everything, right? Mm-hmm. And and no one wants to go out because you're scared about going out. So that's why I got in contact with School on Wheels, because I was thinking, if I'm feeling this is insane, I wonder what families who have nothing feeling mm-hmm. and what can we do to make this better? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's how I got in contact with School on Wheels. And I worked with them for the rest of the year in different areas. They would call up and say, I need headsets, and I'll go and get you some headsets. Um, call up and uh, they'll call up for different things and go, We need storage facilities. I was like, I'll figure out some storage facilities for you guys. Uh, and so I did that. And then after a year, they asked if I'd come on their board, which was really huge honor. And I love working with them, they're so fantastic. Um, and what they do for these children, or what they want to do, and their passion for taking care of the children is just huge. Amazing. So Sounds can like I just do a call out? Yeah. It's honestly, it's amazing. So if anyone listening, uh, especially if you're based in California, wants to be a tutor, online tutor, they are desperate for tutors. We're short of 300 tutors. Yeah, it's a, so that's my... Yeah, so I'm actually looking for... One of the things we're going to launch uh, in the next uh, few months is we're going to do um, a sponsoring program for organisations who want to um, provide tutors for children it's really i mean we say tutors and you're helping the children i think this is an amazing opportunity for people who want to go into leadership for kind of the future leaders to be able to empathize with children to understand how to communicate with people from a different background i love these kind of tutoring mentoring platforms that take you out of your zone and it really does like what's the first question when you speak to a child who is homeless and you can see the room behind you, behind them. What's the first question you ask? You ask them, "What's your? what did you have for dinner today? What did you watch on TV? They have no food. They have no TV. Like, how are you engaging? And I find it so empowering for leaders to understand what it is like to be in someone else's world. Mm-hmm. That kind of ability to empathize, the ability to communicate people from a different social background from a different economic background, from a different ethnic background, 
Uh, and I think it is so empowering. So yeah, so we're, we're hoping that some corporates will take up the opportunity to be able to give their future leaders the opportunity to work with mm-hmm. children from a different background. It's one day, one hour a week mm-hmm. um, online, yeah. just to kind of connect and make a difference to children who really have nothing in our communities. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. What a wonderful opportunity. And I agree on the leadership piece as well and developing different qualities and yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. I'll pop any links in the show notes for that. Definitely. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And um, yeah, I love, you know, you, you've been involved in so many different wonderful causes. Um, one of your other projects is that you were part of the, the Free Periods campaign. And you are partly responsible for bringing free period products to schools in the UK, um, which is quite an achievement. Yeah, I mean, there's so many amazing groups working. I feel like I have like a tiny, tiny part of that. But uh, yeah, so um, I think the thing with menstrual products generally drive me crazy. So I don't have many handbags. (laughs) I I don't, I'm not the person to change bags every week. And I would inevitably get caught out every month, every month. And it's not because I'm not, I'm pretty organized. I just, I don't know, it's the thing you forget, right? You're like, oh yeah, I, what, I don't know. I forget all the time. And so, um, especially when I was working in a big organization like Charles Russell and some of the others, you would be in a meeting. You're like, oh damn it, I forgot. Sorry, I probably shouldn't swear. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, yeah, so, um, but I, you know, you'd forget and you're like, okay, so now what I do, there's a vending machine. So firstly, why is there a vending machine? And who has like coins on them when you're in a meeting? So then you're like, okay. And also it's usually the wrong products. You're like, okay, whatever. So you'd go and ask people and some people have and some people wouldn't. And then you're like, okay, let me just go down to Boots. That whole process takes you about an hour, right? You're like, what is this? I just need some natural products. So in the office, it used to drive me nuts. And I, and I kept on thinking, why don't we just have it? Why don't people just provide it? Like, what is the big deal in this? And so my initial kind of thought process was, I don't understand why we can't just provide it. Why can't we just change health and safety legislation and just have it? Like health and safety legislation prescribes for everything, right? So why can't it prescribe for having menstrual products? So that's how my journey started. And then I was thinking, well, all these girls around the world don't have access to menstrual products. Surely this is just a, a calculation and I can calculate how many um, menstrual products are needed, the cost of it, and then we can create a fund and it's just taken care of, right? I don't have to deal with government stuff, it's just taken care of. And then I read this amazing book and it's just behind me, so I'll read it. It's called Periods Gone Public by Jennifer Wisewolf, an amazing, amazing activist based out of um, New York, I think it is. Um, I spoke to her and she said to me, don't do a fund. This is a government. It should be mandated by the government because that's how you create lasting change. And um, again, I don't know how it didn't hit my head faster and think that through faster, especially from the legal background I have, but it didn't until she said it. I was like, that is exactly what we should do. We should run a legal campaign. And so I talked to her about it, about why the US hasn't that hasn't got that legal campaign. And at the time, she was dealing with the tampon tax in the US. So for example, I think California at the time made 20 million a year in tampon tax. And so that's the campaign she was running. And she actually put together a class action across many different states to get rid of the tampon tax. And it's been really successful. 
Um, so the, the thought process of having a legal campaign was now in my head. And I was thinking, okay, how do we do that? Uh, at the time, I was just like Googling to see what other people were doing in the space. And I came across Amica, Amica George, who I think at the time was about 17. And she had done a petition and she had said, and I'll get the terminology wrong, but it was, if you are a child who's got the school lunches, I don't know what it's called, but um, I think it's called something different in the US. It's like, um, yeah. if you get school lunches, free school meals, I think it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You get the free school, sorry, I, I get confused with the US and the UK terminology mean, sometimes. Thing yeah. I to say, but yeah, I don't know. The right. so, <laughs> I think it's called, I think it's called um, yeah, free school meals, but she... So she said her campaign was if you have, if you can't afford products and you're on the school meals, you should get menstrual products. Mm. Um, and at the time, the government didn't do that. What they did was say, well, give an aspect of the tampon tax to a women's charity who provide menstrual products, which was really poor. I could see her doing work in this campaign. So I contacted her um, and then slowly persuaded her that we should run a legal campaign because I was feeling like, you know, the campaign was losing momentum because it had already, the government had already cleared off that they weren't going to provide it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't understand why do you have to, why do you have to not be able to afford it to get it? Why can't you just get it? Like it's, you have toilet paper, why can't you get it? And so, um, so that's what, so that's where I started playing with it. In that process, she also met members of the Red Box Project who run this fantastic organization that um, provide donations. So the donations you do in supermarkets, they then distribute it to the, the schools that need menstrual products. So she met them and they were thinking about it as well. So we decided to join forces and set up the free period as an actual entity. And then we got Housefield um, and Cloisters interested as well uh, to, to help with the legal advice and the campaign. And then they came up with, obviously, the putting it into health and safety legislation wasn't going to work and we started looking at the Equalities Act and trying to say that you know it's a an, an aspect of equality legislation so yeah it was kind of lots of different triggers and lots of people coming together to go yeah this doesn't make sense um, and it's amazing I mean literally six months after launching having been campaigning for it for a while six months after we actually launched the legal campaign um, the government decided to fold and they initially we only said they would do colleges and secondary schools. Um, and then we went into that to say it's got to be primary schools and potential age discrimination for not having primary schools involved as well, mm. because the age group is kind of getting younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, it was amazing, but I was like one aspect of a yeah. bigger pool of people who were involved in the, um, in all of the campaign, right? There's been yeah. some amazing mm. bloody good period. It's fantastic. There's some amazing organizations who've been campaigning in this, in this space. Mm. Uh, and it's amazing to see the knock on effect. So there's like a lot of other countries that have kind of started to just provide products in Africa, as well as in Europe and um, New Zealand and others as well. And California. Mm. Which has been cool to see. Yeah. yeah. But it's what the thing that, um, it, it has taken me a long time to realize the impact that the law can actually have. And again, I feel like the theme of this thing will be, it takes me a long time, but it, it took me a long time to go, oh, as much as I advise on the law, 
I actually have the ability to change it. And so it's a thing that, that it's a journey that I find so interesting. Like someone decides to wake up and say, I want women to have uh, the ability to open up a bank account. You couldn't open up a bank account until the 70s if you're a woman. You had to have a husband or a father or someone else sign for you. It's like someone woke up and was like, I don't want that to happen. And then the law, after campaigning, a law would have been changed. Mm. It's like we have the ability to change it. And it took, again, took me a while to get to that. And now I have. Like, here, what else are we changing? We've got one piece changed. What else are we changing that doesn't make sense? What other process are we changing that doesn't make sense? Mm. And I recently read Invisible, uh, I think it's called Invisible Women. God, I've got a real mind blank on names today. (laughs) It's like the time zone, clearly need more coffee. Um, (laughs) but, But it's a fantastic book of just these kind of, the rules that were written without half the population being in the space. And the inequality that that has created and taken generations. And even if you read something like The Sum of Us, which is mainly based out of the US and it's like the um, African-American community, but it's just these these kind of historical infrastructures that were created purposely excluding a large portion of the population and their needs has had such a massive impact and a knock-on impact for years. Uh, You know, the... The base is so off. Like, how can you not have menstrual products? It's just the basics. Mm. How can you not have, how can medication not be tested on both both sexes until the 1990s? Like, some of this is just basic. Like, you know, we had the coronavirus and the vaccination and people were saying, oh, it's having an impact on my menstrual cycle. But it's, you know, where's the data of people's menstrual cycles? Where did that come from? It came from, a lot of the apps that we use to track our menstrual cycles, not because anyone in the NHS or any of the medical bodies are tracking menstrual cycles. Like how are we missing these massive chunks of information and data? And like, it's, it just explodes my mind on so many levels. So I'm like, okay, let's start and just think about what are the things we can change and how can we empower other people to make that change as well? Um, so yeah, that's, it's like one of my things. <laughs> I, I love hearing. I love hearing like things that just are illogical and thinking, mm-hmm. okay, "How would I fix that? How yeah. would I fix that? It doesn't make sense." And the work that we're doing on Send Children, so that's the other organisation we started last year, supports Send Kids. The law to to help families obtain um, edu- access to education for Send Children is there. It's just the way it's been implemented is illogical. Like who was in the room when they did this? Mm. Like where, how did they, what was the technology systems that they put in place? What was, I mean, 400 local authorities across you know, across the country have different processes. Like mm. how do you maneuver that? Mm. Like who, who, how did that make sense to someone? Mm. Like, yeah. Anyway, but, but yeah, I mean, we, through the law, we, there is so much we can make right and change mm. and make better for everyone. Yeah, I love that. And maybe the law was supposed to come into your life for that reason. It's that tool. You're not yes. expected to be a lawyer as such, but it's a tool you can use for all these other endeavours um, yes. to make the world more equal. And um, I love your passion for it. And I love you just very clearly are very um, solution focused and you have this vision and you see things that aren't working and you find a way to make them work. Like, 
just the way, I don't know, with the free periods thing, you just thought, oh, okay, well, I'll campaign to change the law or your initial solution. Like both of those are incredible and you just made it happen. Honestly, I just, I'm, my mind is... No, but I think that's so lovely. But I think, I, so this, mm. this it's kind of what I spend my, I do, I love just like imagining and going, if if I could change something, what would it be if I could... And I play with that in many different aspects. I play with it with my kids. Like one of my kids um, a few years ago was really not great at basketball. And I was literally, I was trying to find my texts the other day. I was watching him play a game. And I was like, oh my God, this is killing me watching him play a game. Because I could feel he wanted to be, but I can, I could sense that he couldn't do it. He couldn't read the game. He couldn't maneuver. And anyway, so like over a period of time, I've been going, okay, let's work on certain areas that will make you better. Some of it's sprint training, some of it's just general fitness, some of it's ball handling. And now he's just got into two travel teams within California and he's loving it. And I feel like that's what I like doing. I like kind of finding different pieces that don't work and going, how can we fix that? Mm. Because not everything, and I I love it when it comes together, not because I need the credibility for it. I just love it because I just see see it working and see that someone's world is better for it mm-hmm. and so and I just but that's how I play I kind of like in my head I'm just like okay that doesn't work how would I fix that what would I do uh, and and often it's not me doing the solution with I'm not training him I didn't come up with the, I you know my the legal campaign was my thought process but I didn't come up with the the full-on strategy to do that we had far better legal brains to be able to do that and we had amazing um the closest team were phenomenal Claire and Shona who were just amazing kind of pulling it together and talking about um you know writing the letters and what we should say and giving us the the ability to be able to articulate a legal argument really concisely when you know, it's not, not all of it is our world, right? Human rights is not our, our world, but they empowered us to do it. And then we had Farrah Kane team, um, the, the kind of marketing team and PR team who were phenomenal, not just in terms of helping us raise money to be able to run the campaign, but also just being able to, um, you know, get us the, the awareness in the press and in the government to be able to, to do the campaign. So it's just, it's not all my skill set. It's just I like kind of going, okay, so I need some help with an area. What would I what would I do? Where would I go? Who's the skill set that I need? And then getting seeing if they would be happy to help. I mean, when I first spoke to Claire from Cloisters, she was like, I talked to her about health and safety. She was like, I don't do health and safety legislation. It's like just take my call. <laughs> and she's lovely. She's absolutely lovely. And I was like, please just speak to me. And she did. And she was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then she kind of jumped on board, right? So I think, um, and she did it pro bono, her and Shona, both were pro bono as were hospitals. Yeah, it's just having that spark and then trying to go, how do we put this together? Because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I'm going off tangent, but um, I was watching Ed Sheeran recently and uh, he was, his voice was pretty awful when he first started to sing. I mean, there's a recent clip of him when he was singing and it was like, ouch, like, like, ouch. But he's phenomenal. And he was like, I taught myself how to sing because it's all a muscle. It's a muscle that I operate and I taught myself Mm. and I can sing now. And I loved it and I wanted to do it. 
It's like that kind of thought process kind of follows me. Like I was not made to be a lawyer, but I could do it because I, I can figure out how I needed to get there. Mm. And the, I didn't need to be brilliant at everything, but I was brilliant at certain areas and I could help get resources to help. And so I follow that rule across everywhere. Like I can't do everything, but I can figure out how to get to where we need to be. Um, and I think that's, yeah, that's kind of what I love, trying to figure it out. Yeah, amazing. And that's definitely in alignment with your human design type manifester. They're really great. At, they're here to really initiate new things, bring new things. They see new ways of doing it. And they're not necessarily here to do all the doing, which sounds like you're in alignment with yeah. your mind. <laughs> get on board. You, you have the ideas, you initiate, and then it helps to bring something else to fruition. Yeah. I love, uh, yeah, it's really exciting when that happens, though, when it works, when it works in, in, in different areas, right? It doesn't all have to be in business, mm. in activism, in your family life, trying to kind of find your way of making things better. Mm. Uh, and again, it's, I genuinely believe it's not blowing up a system. You mm. don't need to blow anything up. You just have to like have like marginal gains or incremental changes that make things better. Mm-hmm. It doesn't all have to be. Let me just kind of destroy everything and start again. It doesn't have to be that. True. Yeah, because it's easy to look at the things that aren't working or the negative things and think, yeah, it's all wrong. But it's like, where can we make right. and focus on what is working and improve other areas? Yeah. Yeah. Fab. Well, we've covered so much. And we're coming oh my gosh, on. are we at time? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you the final two questions. These are two questions that I ask every single guest. So I would love to know, if you could go back and chat to an earlier version of Janvi, maybe before um, she embarked on a legal career, what advice would you give her? What did she need to know that you now have the benefit of? Yeah, that's, a re- <laughs> that's really hard. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't say don't do it, right? I think that's one thing. I think as much as I was like, I'm not sure if I wanted to do this was the right thing, I would have still gone do this because it will take you it'll take you to where you're meant to be right I was meant to be here it's meant to have this path so one thing I would say is just follow follow the inner voice and follow your heart um and hear it more clearly sooner maybe Mm -hmm. um but I I would definitely just go follow your heart and your instinct because it's it's there for a reason um and and it's meant to be your path it doesn't have to be anyone else's it it shouldn't be anyone else's path follow your path and to do that you have to listen to yourself Mm. and and really understand it Mm. yeah love that (laughs) and what makes you legally different so many (laughs) (laughs) legally different I think I mean honestly I think the one thing that I do say to um when I speak to students there was nothing in my path that was written and there was nothing that, um, you know, I didn't fit in. I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere, whether it was at, in practice or in-house or even at university within the law kind of the, the community. Uh, I wasn't the right background, ethnicity, especially in those, in those days. And I feel like I just made it work for me. And I think that is different because I see a lot of people just kind of going through a path like make it your own 
Like I made it my own and I made it work for me. Uh, and in doing so, I hope, you know, other people, I, I changed it for other people or made some impact for, for other people in the community. But it was really, I followed my path and it is very different to what most people will have done within this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that was a key part for me. I, I didn't fit in and I still, before I cared, now I don't really, yeah. <laughs> I don't really care. Yeah. But like I don't fit in. I get it. I, it wasn't meant, it, yeah. it wasn't my path. Amazing. Love that. And it's like owning what makes you different because we're all different in different ways, aren't we? Right. Like owning that rather than thinking yeah. we fit into a certain mold or do things how they've done, how they've yeah. always been done or whatever it looks like for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I, um, one of the things that was so big within Halebury was it didn't work. It, it didn't, Halebury worked. I was like, the, the legal profession didn't work. And there was a large part of the community that didn't feel like they had anywhere to go. And I feel like if there's something that's not working for you or something that's not working within your world, you have to see what you can do to fix it. Mm. it again, it doesn't have to be blowing it all up. Just try and fix it. And in doing so, you might make it better for someone else or make, make it better for yourself, but also you might make it better for someone else, which is, which is really, you know, an amazing place to be, to see how you can make a difference for someone else. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. I think that's an amazing point to end on, especially if anyone's at a crossroads or, you know, not sure about their path or anything like focusing on what they see is challenging in the world or what they see isn't working. Maybe that is part of your path. Maybe yeah. that's an invitation to step Absolutely. into something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Well, I love that. Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> great point to end. And um, yeah, thank you so much for that. Wow. I feel like we've covered so much and we could still go in. I mean, I could talk forever. <laughs> And um, yeah, I'll put all your links, your contact links in the show notes and everything and all the products that you're involved with and how people can get involved as well to help. But um, yes, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. As I said, I could talk to you forever. (laughs) Keep going. Yeah. Can't believe it's been, we're at time already. I know. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, your day's just beginning, isn't it? So um, <laughs> yeah, I'll go get the kids up. Thank you so much for getting up so early. And um, yeah, thank you. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Um, yeah, that brings season two to an end. Thank you so much to everyone who has tuned into season two or the podcast at all it really means the world it's much appreciated as always feel free to reach out i'd love to hear what you resonated with what inspired you from that last conversation with jamvi yeah always open to hearing and in terms of the future of legally different it will very much continue um I'm just feeling into some changes for season three. I'm feeling a call to do it in a different way. I don't have full clarity on what that would look like just yet. So I'm just kind of going to sit with that and navigate through. Um, And once I have full clarity, I will, you know, maybe do a mini episode or something to update you. But yeah, Legally Different will absolutely still continue. I'm just feeling little soul nudges to bring it in a different way. So 
yeah, I will keep you posted on the next evolution of Legally Different. And in the meantime, the inbox is always open. Hello at Legally Different. As you know, I'm offering one-on-one human design sessions. So if you're curious about human design or if you already know about it and you want to dive deeper, then yeah, one-on-one sessions are open and I love, love doing them. Um, So yeah, feel free to email me about those or the booking links in the show notes. Um, There's lots of different things going on on that front as well. And some, yeah, so we shall see. And yeah, a final thank you for tuning in. It honestly means the world. Thank you, thank you so much for being here, for tuning into Legally Different and being part of this community. And yeah, I shall see you in the next evolution, season three, whatever that will look like. And I will keep you posted. Thank you so much.